0: We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and I'm recording from the cabin in the woods, which, uh, as you probably know, for the duration of a lockdown, is located somewhere in deepest, darkest West Cork. Now, you join me in the middle of a rather disappointing cold spot in the early summer. We had some fantastic weather not long ago, and it seems to have gone, hopefully, not for good. But what that means is you find me inside the cabin this time, and with the fire going, Uh, It's not a dark night, but it is a grey and cold one, so I'm going to take this opportunity to cover something a little bit spooky and a little bit wintry even uh, at this summery time of year. So uh, imagine me sitting by the fire, of course, with a well-stocked library behind me of fine leather-bound volumes. I'm drinking a can of Nightcrawler Milk Stout from Old Brother Brewing, uh, located somewhere in lovely Wicklow. Now this month I have been rereading some old books that I like. I reread the original Dracula. I tend to reread that one every couple of years. I also have reread for the first time Kim Newman's wonderful Anno Dracula, which is a kind of a riff on the novel from 1992. It is sort of like a one of those Victorian pastiche novels that were very popular kind of around the turn of the millennium i must say i don't have a lot of patience for most of them and i I have a tough time with kind of anything that labels itself as being steampunk you know things that are sort of set in victorian times but mixing and matching uh, elements from different novels it's a it was a really popular thing for a while i've no problem with it i don't mind if people like it. it it just doesn't work for me. Most of it doesn't, anyway. I kind of feel like there's a few key, um, a few key key books and comics and stuff that did this well early on. This is one of them. Uh, Alan Moore's uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, of course, is another one. And I feel like the the idea has been done, and there isn't that much really to play with. And I think people are kind of flogging. A dead horse with that at the moment but for all that I know Dracula for some reason works for me it is a mishmash of historical and fictional characters in Victorian London and uh, it's primarily a mashup between Dracula and Jack the Ripper it's it's an alternate reality in which Jonathan Harker and his crew from the Dracula novel fail to defeat Dracula and he marries Queen Victoria and floods London and Europe with vampires which was his plan of course in the original novel so I have vampires on my mind at the moment from rereading these books and also only this morning I saw there's a new trailer for a new Resident Evil game I believe it's Resident Evil 8 and uh, they seem to be setting this game in some sort of you know vampire-like Eastern Europe kind of a location made me think a little bit about the one of the recent Resident Evil games the one that was set in the Louisiana mansion I think that was 6 though uh, don't at me if I'm wrong about that and how in that game, they were definitely going for a sort of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of a riff. So I don't know what's happening with the Resident Evilverse now. Perhaps their new thing is just going to be, you know, riffing on every different horror trope or location and, and somehow tying it loosely into the RE universe. I have no idea. But what we saw in the trailer was you know a village in some kind of mist shrouded dark spooky corner of what looks like the old world it looks like some corner of europe perhaps with elements of witchcraft and um lycanthropy and supposedly with a lot of influence from the robert eggers film the witch uh, if you're a fan of that we have done an episode of that with my brother donald just a few months ago please check that out and um, if you're a fan of resident evil full stop we recently did an episode all about survival horror as well Now, a lot of people have written uh, a lot about Resident Evil over the years, and a lot of podcasts have been done about it, so, you know, we just went with our own personal take, our own personal recollections. It is a bit of a nostalgia fest, but we had a great time recording it, and I do recommend you check that one out as well if you're interested. In any case, all of this stuff put me in mind of something I did record a long time ago on a previous podcast. It reminded me that here in the cabin I am indeed surrounded by dusty tapes and scripts from old shows, many of which currently have no online home. So in the interests of keeping busy and keeping relevant, I dug up an old script from several years ago from my old show, Strange Ireland, and I, I took just one section of it out. From, it's from my Sheridan Lefanu episode. Sheridan Lefanu was a Dublin a writer of horror stories in the 19th century. And in one section of that episode, I got to talking about the concept of the Überwald, which is the, the fantastic location in which these sort of mystery Eastern European um, horror stories tend to happen. So I've dug out that script and I'm going to use it to elaborate upon this concept in more depth than I did originally back then. So, uh, as you probably know, location is a highly important element of the vampire mythos especially in the original vampire stories vampires in western literature often represent a form of orientalism that is uh, emphasizing the otherness of eastern countries and and not the western countries so it's no coincidence that fictional vampires tend to be associated with wild remote regions of central and eastern europe uh, and that they are usually described in ways i mean the locations are described in ways meant to deliberately separate them from the more developed Western nations, where it was accepted such superstitions, as well as such evils, could no longer exist. So all of this leads to the notion that vampires and other old world horrors exist in a kind of never-never land, a generic, spooky Eastern European locale. Whether it's called Styria, Istria or Transylvania, this stereotypical locale fits in with the idea of the Uberwald, Uh, And I quite like the definition of this from the website TV Tropes. So here we go. Their description goes like this. You think you're in a nice little Ruritania somewhere in Eastern Europe. Uh, Ruritania, of course, being the fictional country from the prisoner of Zenda. And the word Ruritania now is a bit of a stand-in for any made-up sort of small Central European kingdoms in fiction. So it's like Ruritania, only the black forests are even blacker than you expected and even more full of wolves some of which seem to be walking on their hind legs. When you finally get to the little town you were aiming for, the vaguely ethnic and primitive locals are huddling fearfully in the tavern, refusing to talk to you, except to give vaguely worded and heavily accented warnings. So you go up to the castle in the hope of finding some civilization. Well, if there's a local nobleman living there, he will probably welcome you warmly, although he may be strangely insistent that you Enter freely and of your own will. He will probably be old school, very old nobility, even blood nobility. Alternatively, there might be someone more modern and technically minded living there, along with his lab assistant. Unfortunately, he will probably not be big on the precautionary principle, and will make strong attempts to persuade you to volunteer to take part in his research. Congratulations, you are now in Uberwald. Hope you survive your visit. So you can obviously tell the references to Vampire, Werewolf and Frankenstein lore there, all of which have taken place in some version of this Uber Vault location. So this is the mythical version of Eastern Europe where Hammer horror movies take place. And uh, unfortunately, the rather terrible Stephen Summers Van Helsing movie, um, as awful as it is, this is a classic example of the Uber Vault. It's It's really a pastiche of the not so much the Hammer films as the 1930s Universal uh, monster movies and the that the director James Whale from back then uh, is most famous for, for directing. So this this Uberval location has gone by many different names in different series. If you play D&D, you might know it as Ravenloft. If you're a fan of the fighting fantasy books, as I am myself, you might know the locations of Moristatia, uh, Mortvania or Lapravia. I love how they uh, keep coming up with variations on these these same few words. Uh, I'll dip into this for a moment. So this, uh, most uh, fighting fantasy novels take place in a more generic Tolkien-like uh, European fantasy world setting, but some of them take place in this sort of Uber Vault. Uh One of the first ones to use this location was Vault of the Vampire um, from 1989. It's a cheesy title, but it's a great book. And this is written by Keith Martin, with great pictures by Martin McKenna. It's one of my favourite uh, fighting fantasy books. I do have a copy of it that I bought online years ago, but it's quite rare now. And I think uh, copies of it go for rather stupid prices, but not as stupid as the the sequel, Revenge of the Vampire, which is not nearly as good, but just is more rare because it came out closer to the end of the series. So the front cover of this is a, is a fantastic old-fashioned very hammer horror influenced picture of a classic old school vampire with a a pale face and a widow's peak and a cloak and a big red uh, red collar and behind him is a traditional uh, woman lying down on an altar in some sort of sacrificial pose and wearing a gown and um well according to fighting fantasy com. And uh, Les Edwards, who did the original picture, states that he remembers the publishers did ask him to make the girl's breast smaller, which he did reluctantly. <laughs> so there's a little little fact for you there. So this takes place in a part of the fighting fantasy world called Morastatia which is basically a sort of a vampire country. Um, one of the other much later books to take up this location again was Howl of the Werewolf uh, which came out in 2007. That's by Jonathan Green, who's done a lot over the years to keep the fighting fantasy world going. I did meet him very briefly at Fighting Fantasy Fest uh, last year in London. So he's he's doing he's doing a lot of heavy lifting to keep things going with that fandom and with that world. So And, and Howl of the Werewolf also is rare because it came out towards the end of the series. I think it was only released by the Withered Books, which was a, a second set of editions done by a different publisher to the original. And, by and large, is not um, they're not as liked by by fans and collectors, but some of them are just really hard to get. And look, collecting aside, I don't I don't give a fudge about collecting. I just like the books that are good. And Howl of the Werewolf is brilliant because Jonathan Green is very deliberately engaging with the lore of the Uberwald, and he chucks everything into this book that he can think of that anyone would ever associate with this trope and with this location. He's clearly having a lot of fun with it. The book is very big. It's longer than most uh, fighting fantasy novels. And the the amount of exploration you can do and bump into, you know, if you know what you're looking for, you'll bump into creatures from different uh, universes and different fandoms. And there are, you know, uh, off-brand, shall we say, representations of characters and vampires and werewolves from all different series. And it's a lot of fun if you're a fan of this sort of environment. So if you can get a hold of it anywhere without paying stupid prices for it i do recommend howl of the werewolf now here's a little bit of text from the book just to to show you the sort of world in which it takes place lupravia is a cursed land a chill place of snow-capped mountains brooding forests and mist shrouded moors haunted by the spirits of the restless dead peasants struggle daily with survival living in constant fear of attacks from ravenous wild beasts Only the foolhardy or insane would willingly pass beyond its borders and enter that benighted realm of predators. But enter you must, after a vicious wolf attack sets you on the path to murder and madness. Steadily succumbing to the call of the wild and the beast within, you must seek out a cure to your condition before the next full moon. But how long can you survive in a land where the powers of darkness hold sway and all live in fear of the howl of the werewolf? Great stuff. It's one of my favourite uh, game books. So this Lupravia concept obviously is the the Transylvania of Bram Stoker, perhaps most, most famously, and we will get back to him. It's a land of deep forests, castles perched on craggy peaks, gypsies and burgomasters, wolves and locals who don't know whether they're Germanic or Slavs, often because the authors don't really care but we're going to jump right back to the middle of the 19th century to try and find one of the key originators of this trope, okay? So Dracula is 1897, it's right at the end of the 19th century, and I I would plug most versions of this trope that you see now are, are some sort of riff on Dracula, but the the origin or the originator of this is a lot older. So 1839. Captain Frederick Marriott writes a rather interminable novel called *The Phantom Ship*. I have tried to read it. It's not great, and it's it's mostly about the 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 legend of the Flying Dutchman, which sounds great, but it's 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 a stiff read. But there is one gem in there. There's an often reprinted chapter in the book called *The White Wolf of the Harz Mountains*. So this is an early werewolf tale. And it's set in Marriott's own particular Uberwald, which is the real life Harz Mountains in Germany. He emphasizes the remoteness of the setting, as well as the fact that the cursed werewolf family line comes from nowhere other than Transylvania. So here's a very early a fictional uh, tale in which Transylvania shows up as a, you know, a distant, spooky, and mysterious kind of a place. Here's a, a few quotes from the beginning of the White Wolf of the Harris Mountains talking about the location they're in. (laughs) <laughs> I take it for granted that you have heard people speak of the Har's Mountains, observed Krantz. I have never heard people speak of them that I can recollect, replied Philip, but I have read of them in some book and of the strange things which have occurred there. It is indeed a wild region, rejoined Krantz, and many strange tales are told of it, but strange as they are. I have good reason for believing them to be true i have told you philip that i fully believe in your communion with the other world for that we are surrounded impelled and worked upon by beings different in their nature from ourselves i have had full evidence as you will acknowledge when i state what has occurred in my own family why such malevolent beings as i am about to speak of should be permitted to interfere with us and punish i may say comparatively unoffending mortals is beyond my comprehension but that they are so permitted is most certain my father was not born or originally a resident in the harris mountains he was the serf of a hungarian nobleman of great possessions in transylvania after some problems he continued his flight without intermission until he had buried himself in the intricacies and seclusion of the harris mountains my oldest recollections are knit to a rude yet comfortable cottage in which I lived with my father, brother and sister. It was on the confines of one of those vast forests which cover the northern part of Germany. Around it were a few acres of ground which, during the summer months, my father cultivated and which, though they yielded a doubtful harvest, were sufficient for our support. In the winter we remained much indoors for, as my father followed the chase, we were left alone and the wolves during that season incessantly prowled about. My father had purchased the cottage and land about it of off one of the rude foresters who gained their livelihood partly by hunting and partly by burning charcoal, for the purpose of smelting the ore from the neighbouring mines. It was distant about two miles from any other habitation. I can call to mind the whole landscape now, the tall pines which rose up on the mountain above us, and the wide expanse of forest beneath, on the topmost boughs and heads of whose trees we looked down from our cottage as the mountain below us rapidly descended into the distant valley. In summertime, the prospect was beautiful, but during the severe winter, a more desolate scene could not well be imagined. Well, there you go, folks. That is the opening to The White Wolf of the Harris Mountains. Perhaps you can get a, a, an idea there as to whether or not you'd actually like to go ahead and read the entirety of The Phantom Ship if you're uh, well into the writing style of the 1840s. But it is interesting that right here, early on, or at least halfway through the 19th century, we have a lot of these elements already in place. We have the Central European location, we have the forests, the mountains, the isolated cottage, the snow, and the wolves, of course. Now, just reading this, it occurs to me that this is the same sort of Germany, you know, conjured up by the Brothers Grimm when they went uh, collecting folktales tales. Of Germany in the 19th century and you know all the old stories of people in remote places living in fear of wolves and other animals in the forest. Of course the Brothers Grimm believed that they were collecting a sort of a a living folk tradition and in in the process they were trying to almost remake what it meant to be German. You know some of their work really tied into um, what later became German identity movements and, and the idea of Volk or Folk which obviously went to some dark places eventually, but uh, still, it's interesting to see uh, elements of that in, in this early novel. Now, we're going to shoot forward through time and space to my boy Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, uh, a Dublin man and uh, an incredibly important figure in the history of uh, horror stories. Uh, none other than M.R. James frequently, um, frequently described him as an important influence H.P. Lovecraft was a fan as well. I'm pretty sure he mentions him in his seminal essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature. I can't confirm that right away, but I'm nearly sure. He was definitely interested in, um, in, in Lefanu and his writing. So, my favorite thing Lefanu did was a collection of short stories called Through a Glass Darkly, which was published in 1872. And it's basically a set of stories uh, recounted by what might be considered an early psychic detective, a fellow by the name of Dr. Martin Heselius. Now, again, we have the German uh, professional, German medical or scientific professional here who knows all about the paranormal, the supernatural. So definitely shades of the more famous uh, Professor Van Helsing here. Uh, So uh, again, from another Irishman, of course, Bram Stoker. So in Through a Glass Darkly, the most... Well, my favourite story is, is called Green Tea, which I've spoken about in a previous episode. But probably the most influential story was one called Carmilla, and this is an early vampire tale. So Sheridan Lefanu follows the, the suit of uh, Marietta in, in kicking off the action of Carmilla in a similarly wild and desolate part of Europe. Uh, he chooses the province of Styria in the southeast of Austria. His narrator and nineteen year old Laura is of English descent, and her life at an outpost of Englishness in this alien wilderness might be seen to parallel Lefanu's own Anglo Irish society's view of their own culture as being an embattled declining people. Here's how Sheridan Lefanu describes the environment of Carmilla. In Styria, we, though by no means magnificent people, inhabit a castle or schloss, A small income in that part of the world goes a great way. Eight or nine hundred a year does wonders. Scantily enough, ours would have answered among wealthy people at home. My father is English and I bear an English name, although I never saw England. But here, in this lonely and primitive place, where everything is so marvellously cheap, I really don't see how ever so much more money would at all materially add to our comforts or even luxuries. Nothing can be more picturesque or solitary. It stands on a slight eminence in a forest. The road, very old and narrow, passes in front of its drawbridge, never raised in my time, and its moat, stocked with perch and sailed over by many swans, and floating on its surface, white fleets of water lilies. Over all this, the Schloss shows its many-windowed front, its towers and its gothic chapel, the forest opens in an irregular and very picturesque glade before its gate, and at the right a steep gothic bridge carries the road over a stream that winds in deep shadow through the wood. I have said that this is a very lonely place, judge whether I say truth. Looking from the hall door towards the road, the forest in which our castle stands extends 15 miles to the right and 12 to the left. The nearest inhabited village is about seven of your English miles to the left. The nearest inhabited schloss of any historic associations is that of old General Spielsdorf, nearly twenty miles away to the right. I have said the nearest inhabited village because there is only three miles westward, that is to say in the direction of General Spielsdorf's schloss, a ruined village, with its quaint little church, now roofless, in the aisle of which are the mouldering tombs of the proud family of Karnstein, now extinct, who once owned the equally desolate chateau which, in the thick of the forest, overlooks the silent ruins of the town. Respecting the cause of the desertion of this striking and melancholy spot, there is a legend which I shall relate to you another time. There you go folks, that is the opening to Carmilla uh, needless to say, the uh, aforementioned Karnstein family are not quite as extinct as the narrator uh, reckons. But uh, again, think of some of the elements that are being introduced here to the ubervold idea. Once again, you have the isolated castle or schloss, we have the mountains and we have the, the vast forest around them. But now we have a, a ruined village and a desolate chateau in the middle of the forest. Now, as it turns out, a, a visitor by the name of Carmilla comes to the castle and stays there and turns out to be some sort of undead uh, remnant of the Karnstein family. And one of the reasons why Carmela, I think, was influential and is still talked about is it's a, very, it's a very sensual and sexual story. There are implications of lesbianism that are practically, they're not even subtext, they're just text. Uh, so you know i mean you zoom forward to the 20th century you have the hammer horror uh, studio making like loads of sort of lesbian vampire movies that i guess are still seen as being a bit a bit trashy and and not exactly high art but uh, you know to some degree they were pulling on this material and uh, they use some of the same names of the characters to imply a connection though um, they're they're perhaps even though this victorian story Um, is of course more restrained than the later films. If you go back and read it, the the sort of passion underlying everything is is quite striking as well. I think that's fair to say. The uh, location, as you can probably tell, is wonderfully evoked. And uh, this is important as a text that helped to create the concept of the Uberwald, as well as fitting into the older Gothic tradition of remote locales and gloomy castles. Which brings us finally for this episode to Bram Stoker and Dracula, so again, another Dublin man, uh, crucial in the formation of this idea, and I think, beyond any doubt, the most influential expositor of this idea. So whether or not you're familiar with the story of Dracula, whether you only kind of know it through pop culture and spoofs and pastiches, whether you're more familiar with the film versions, and for my money, the best one is the uh, the 1992 uh, Franz Ford Coppola one, though problematic it parts and um, there's certainly elements of it that seem maybe a little bit camper over the top uh, I think it brings some of the best elements of the original novel to the screen uh, some of the some of the right just some of the stuff that really works for me um is brought to the fore in this film version or whether you've you're very familiar with the source novel you've read it many times yourself I find it always it always pays to take a reread to this one I always find new things in it and one of the one of the strange things about this is how Stoker was a fairly private person himself and much has been written about you know where he may have gotten his inspirations for Dracula he did leave notebooks behind some of which have been rediscovered only in the last few years there seems to be a bit of a cottage industry in like not taking him at his word when he explains where he got his inspiration for Dracula people really want to read into uh, things in the book and apply stuff from his life, even stuff that, you know, did, didn't necessarily happen to him or that we don't know actually happened to him. Uh, and it's really difficult to say for sure what what sources he may have had. and And information on this changes all the time and there's a lot of misinformation about it as well. So short of doing a full episode on that, I'm not going to go into too much detail at the moment about what's currently believed about uh, Stoker and his sources suffice it to say he himself never went to Eastern Europe um, he may have known people who did he definitely had a certain amount of uh, lit- written written evidence about what uh, the Victorians felt about Eastern Europe and Transylvania at this time but I'll leave it at that so I'm going to do a longer reading from the opening to Dracula and I'm just going to take a few a few bits from the the beginning of Jonathan Harker's journal when he's traveling in eastern europe because this is the stuff i find most interesting so pay attention to the orientalizing of eastern europe here notice how a, a late 19th century you know anglo-irish writer uh, sees himself through the character of harker who's an englishman and, and how he how he separates himself from this wild and superstitious country he's traveling through note also the place of religion here so harker presumably is church of england which of course especially at this time uh, sees itself as a very kind of solid and serious and non-superstitious type of christianity Uh, and as he's traveling in transylvania he comes even other types of christianity are are wild seem wild and woolly and superstitious to him so Jonathan harker's journal kept in shorthand of May, Bistritz. Left Munich at 8.35 p.m. on the 1st of May, arriving at Vienna early next morning. Should have arrived at 6.46, but the train was an hour late. Budapest seems a wonderful place, from the glimpse which I got of it from the train and the little I could walk through its streets. I feared to go very far from the station, as we had arrived late and would start as near the correct time as possible. The impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east. The most western of splendid bridges over the Danube, which is here of noble width and depth, took us among the traditions of Turkish rule. We left in pretty good time and came after nightfall to Klausenberg. Here I stopped for the night at the Hotel Royal. I had for dinner, or rather supper, a chicken done up some way with red pepper, which was very good but thirsty. Memo. Get recipe from Mina. I asked the waiter, and he said it was called Paprika Händel, and that as it was a national dish, I should be able to get it anywhere along the Carpathians. I found my smattering of German very useful here. Indeed, I don't know how I should be able to get on without it. Having had some time at my disposal when in London, I had visited the British Museum, and made search among the books and maps in the library regarding Transylvania. It had struck me that some foreknowledge of the country could hardly fail to have some importance in dealing with the nobleman of that country. I find that the district he named is in the extreme east of the country, just on the borders of three states, Transylvania, Moldavia, and Bukovina, in the midst of the Carpathian Mountains, one of the wildest and least known portions of Europe. I was not able to light on any map or work giving the exact locality of the Castle Dracula, as there are no maps of this country as yet compare with our own Ordnance Survey maps. But I found that Bistritz, the post town named by Count Dracula, is a fairly well-known place. I shall enter here some of my notes, as they may refresh my memory when I talk over my travels with Mina. In the populations of Transylvania there are four distinct nationalities. Saxons in the south, and mixed with them the Valachs who are the descendants of the Decians, Magyars in the west and Szekelys in the east and north. I am going among the latter, who claim to be descended from Attila the Hun. This may be so, for when the Magyars conquered the country in the 11th century, they found the Huns settled in it. I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered in the horseshoe of the Carpathians, as if it were the centre of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. If so... My stay may be very interesting. Memo, I must ask the Count all about them. I did not sleep well, though my bed was comfortable enough, for I had all sorts of queer dreams. There was a dog howling all night under my window, which may have had something to do with it, or it may have been the paprika, for I had to drink up all the water in my carafe and was still thirsty. Towards morning, I slept and was wakened by the continuous knocking at my door, so I guess I must have been sleeping soundly then. I had for breakfast more paprika and a sort of porridge of maize flour, which they said was mamalaga, and eggplant stuffed with force meat, a very excellent dish, which they call implatata. Memo, get recipe for this also. I had to hurry breakfast, for the train started a little before eight, or rather it ought to have done so, for after rushing to the station at 7.30, I had to sit in the carriage for more than an hour before we began to move. It seems to me that the further east you go, the more unpunctual are the trains. What ought they to be in China? All day long we seemed to dawdle through a country which was full of beauty of every kind. Sometimes we saw little towns or castles on the top of steep hills, such as we see in old Missiles. Sometimes we ran by rivers and streams, which seemed from the wide stony margin on each side of them to be subject to great floods. It takes a lot of water and running strong to sweep the outside edge of a river clear. At every station there were groups of people, sometimes crowds and in all sorts of attire. Some of them were just like the peasants at home, or those I saw coming through France and Germany with short jackets and round hats and homemade trousers, but others were very picturesque. The women looked pretty, except when you got near them, but they were very clumsy about the waist. They had all full white sleeves of some kind or other, and most of them had big belts with a lot of strips of something fluttering from them, like the dresses in a ballet, but of course there were petticoats under them. The strangest figures we saw were the Slovaks, who were more barbarian than the rest, with their big cowboy hats, great baggy dirty white trousers, white linen shirts and enormous heavy leather boots. On the stage, they would be set down at once as some old oriental band of brigands. They are, however, I am told, very harmless and rather wanting in natural self-assertion. It was on the dark side of twilight when we got to Bistritz, which is a very interesting old place. Being practically on the frontier, for the Borgo Pass leads from it into Bukovina, it has had a very stormy existence, and it certainly shows marks of it. Whew, uh, long quote there, but uh, hopefully you'll appreciate few things firstly i the places where harker is traveling through it would have been seen as a marker of the the divide between east and west in those days and um, because he's b- basically at the furthest region west where the ottoman turks had control so he says um, he's going to a place uh, among the traditions of turkish rule so that would have been seen as a very oriental and different environment from the rest of western europe I also enjoy how much time he spends uh, denigrating the, the state of the trains and how the trains are always late, which I suppose would have been seen to a, you know, a late 19th century Englishman as, you know, the heights of their own particular success in civilization. So I enjoyed that as well. And he, he goes out of his way to point out how strangely dressed everybody is and how they look like uh, Orientals in some kind of play. Uh, I have a few other bits here that I might mention. So just to show how superstitious uh, the peasants are, uh, when he stops at another inn, the proprietress says to him, "'It is the eve of St. George's Day. "'Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, "'all the evil things in the world will have full sway? "'Do you know where you are going and what you are going to?' "'She was in such evident distress that I tried to comfort her, "'but without effect. "'Finally, she went down on her knees and implored me not to go.' at least to wait a day or two before starting. Uh, She then uh, takes a crucifix and offers it to him and he says, I did not know what to do, for as an English churchman I have been taught to regard such things as in some measure idolatrous, and yet it seems so ungracious to refuse an old lady meaning so well. So that's interesting how a Victorian uh, Church of England person would see the mere wearing of a crucifix, you know, supposedly the the, the icon of his faith, uh, that would be... Kind of, you know, barbarian or backwards or superstitious, which is entertaining to me, and and for him to uh, point that out as being a particularly eastern and non-English thing, he then, oh yes, when the coach arrives to collect him, he says there were many nationalities in the crowd, so I quietly got my polyglot dictionary from my bag and looked them out. I must say they were not cheering for me, for amongst them were Ordog, Satan, Pokal, Hell. Strigoika, which vololak and ooh voloslak both of which mean the same thing one being slovak and the other serbian for something that is either werewolf or vampire memo i must ask the count about these superstitions so i, I won't uh, i wouldn't take those translations to the bank but um obviously that that's the sort of thing that the sort of information stoker was able to get a hold of in in the whatever material he had access to it does make me think of one of those words that is pretty close to vrykolas, which is, I think, a Greek word for a pseudo-vampire folk creature. A lot of folklorists at this time w- would mention that as being similar to vampire lore in Western Europe, but I think I think you have to overlook a few things to be able to make those connections. The, the Greek vrykolas were more like spirits. They could travel through uh, solid walls and uh, they would... They would suck energy from people, if not blood, uh, but they were definitely not, as far as I as, far as I recall, I don't think they were actually reanimated corpses the way a vampire is, but the the line does blur depending on where you're picking up your folklore and who you're reading. So I'll leave it at that. That, that, that is some of the early history of the concept of the Uber Vault. If you have anything to add yourself, if you've come across this idea in a film or a book or a game and you think it's an interesting addition to the canon, please do let us know. I'm aware the word UberVault comes from Terry Pratchett and Discworld. I just haven't read a lot of Discworld. It's not one of my fandoms, so I don't feel confident saying too much about it. But if you have uh, evidence of this from any other uh, any other place, I would love to hear about it. All the usual things apply, folks. Please, please, please. Uh share episodes with anyone who you think might be interested review on your podcatchers whatever you do wherever you get them even write something rude or tell me i'm being stupid great i'll lap it all up i'll take it on board and um yeah if you have any weird stories yourself of course as always we'd love to hear them uh also you can find us on twitter we are at strange ireland and hopefully we'll see you then so stay safe and catch you next time we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.